Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Economist. From The Economist in London, this is Money Talks, a weekly program about news in the worlds of business, finance and economics. I'm Edward McBride, the finance editor. On today's show, we'll discuss the $8 billion Ponzi scheme that has bilked 900,000 Chinese investors and the relentless spread of negative interest rates around the globe. Here with me to discuss these topics are James Miles, our China editor, and John O'Sullivan, our economics editor. James, let's start with you. Uh, Isabao, a Chinese peer-to-peer lending company, has been accused of bilking its customers in a Ponzi scheme. Uh, That's to say, instead of uh, using money deposited with it to make genuine investments that earn a return, it's instead been paying old investors back with the money deposited by new investors. Uh, This sort of scam is, is distressingly common in China, isn't it? Well, scams like this, yes, have been uh, bubbling up pretty often over the years. This one, however, is exceptionally large. As you say, 900,000 investors scammed and uh, a total of 7 billion US dollars or more gone missing from this firm. Uh, And it comes uh, at a particularly difficult time. And I think that's one reason why uh, the government is so worried about this case, uh, because Uh, The economy is slowing. There are worries about weaknesses in the financial system becoming more evident as as growth weakens and uh, a fear that more and more Ponzi schemes will become evident and particularly in this peer-to-peer lending sector, which has grown very rapidly indeed in the last couple of years. This particular company just in 18 months had had acquired so-called investments of several billion dollars. Uh, and that's because people have very few choices for investment and, and have uh, have piled into these kind of schemes. Right. As you say, very common, but it's, it's partly common because it's a logical result of the way the financial system in China has been run, right? I mean, banks are now free to set interest rates at the levels they want, but that, that wasn't true until only very recently. And what that meant, basically, was that Chinese savers had very few places to put their money in and earn a decent return. Well, absolutely. The the choices are a roller coaster stock market that's little more than a casino, a real estate sector that, yes, has been going up and up, but uh, but there are certainly fears that uh, that it too may prove a bubble. Putting your money in, in the state-owned banking system is, is hardly attractive. Yes, interest rates have been free, but banks still hew pretty close to central bank guidelines when it comes to setting interest rates. So along come these peer-to-peer lending schemes. They're offering uh, double-digit rates of return. Uh, they're pretty opaque when it comes to who they're lending to. In theory, they're peer-to-peer. In practice, the money is channeled through these firms, which or very often through these firms, which then decide which companies uh, to lend to and quite how you assess these 
companies in a system that uh, has very little history of credit rating, it's very difficult indeed. And so, uh, in effect, this has, in many cases, uh, become uh, a rather dodgy and, and quite possibly, in, in, in several cases, giant Ponzi-type operations. So there's a dilemma here for, for regulators, isn't there? I mean, on the one hand, uh, we, we had a story a couple of weeks ago uh, talking about the stats on Chinese peer-to-peer lenders. Uh, out of roughly 4,000 of them, over 1,200 have run into difficulties of some kind. An astonishing 266 peer-to-peer bosses have absconded, leaving their companies in tatters over the past six months alone. So, you know, you'd, you'd think you'd want to be very careful before putting your money in one of these. On, on the other hand, there are some big Chinese peer-to-peer lenders. The Chinese government is trying to liberalize finance. Some of them have listed on the New York Stock Exchange or are planning IPOs. Uh, you know, how do you... Uh, weed out the bad ones without sort of crushing uh, the innovation that that Chinese finance so badly needs? Well, this innovation is very important to China's financial system. And that's why the government has been allowing this peer-to-peer lending sector to to develop so rapidly. It wanted to to really kind of give the the state-owned banking system a bit of a a kick up the backside, uh, having uh, existed for so long uh, with with the kind of safety uh, blanket of of government uh, set interest rates, which guaranteed them profits, uh, but it hasn't introduced the kind of uh, regulation and legislation needed in order to make sure that this market works properly. And belatedly, they've been trying to to catch up with this. Toward the end of last year, they introduced uh, draft regulations uh, uh, aimed at making the peer-to-peer lending sector more open. That may work, but uh, but it'll take uh, quite some time. This is a, a hugely opaque system. And, and uh, that was evident uh, when, when the Yizhu Bao case came to light. They said they had to, to dig uh, 20 feet underground in order to unearth hundreds of bags full of, uh, of accounts uh, records from this company. That's the level of opacity that, that uh, what one assumes is widespread uh, in this industry. Well, from digging deep underground to find the records of malfeasance at Chinese financial firms to digging ever deeper into negative territory for interest rates. Uh, Let's bring you in on this, John. It used to be a European phenomenon, negative interest rates. The the, uh, Eurozone adopted them. So did a couple of other countries. But now Japan has adopted them as well. The, The scourge seems to be uh, spreading around the world. And indeed, uh, the rates are also getting ever lower. How, how low can they go? Well, for a long time, it was thought that they couldn't get below zero. And in fact, if you go back to 2009, when the Bank of England adopted quantitative easing, before it did so, it cut interest rates to 0.5% and said it can't go lower because otherwise there's going to be financial stability concerns. And I think that's still, that's still, the, that's still a constraint on how far interest rates can be cut. The problem lies with banks they are having essentially to pay to deposit their reserves at the central bank now in, uh, as you said, in the Eurozone, in Switzerland, in Denmark, in Sweden, and now Japan. So the phenomenon has gone from Europe to being global now. But they can't very easily pass uh, that charge on to consumers, particularly retail customers who are unwilling to, to pay to have their deposits resting at the bank. And what that means is that though lending rates come down, that the rates that banks to pay on deposits to customers can't go down. And so that squeezes the net interest margins and does the profits of banks. So it's putting increasing pressure, particularly on Europe, on banks. In Japan, I have to say, they've tried, um, it, certainly in the, what they announced last week, to mitigate some of that pressure by only charging the negative interest rate on a portion 
of banks' reserves, so the reserves that will be built up subsequent to the, to the announcement. And so at least there is some that, that takes some of the pressure off the Japanese banks. In Europe, unfortunately, or unfortunately for European banks, uh, that's not easy to do, partly because it has some very strange distributional consequences. A lot of the European banks that have big deposits at the central bank tend to be in northern Europe and lots of net borrowers in southern Europe. So you're introducing a kind of country bias if you were to, to do what the Bank of Japan does in Europe. So banks are immediately bearing the brunt. But but if rates stay negative for a long time, it could upend all kinds of assumptions we have about uh, the way uh, finance and economics works, couldn't it? Yes. The initial assumption about why rates couldn't go to zero with it was that people, depositors and also banks themselves were just switching to cash, which is essentially a, a zero yielding asset. As it turns out, at very sort of modest negative interest rates, the cost of actually doing that means that banks are happy to continue to to pay the charge to central banks. But you can imagine um, if this goes on for much longer, if interest rates are cut much deeper, then it's not just that people will be looking to switch into cash. They'll be looking to switch into anything that means they can avoid the, the charge paid to banks for deposits. So, for example, one thing that big companies could do is prepay um, their corporate taxes or overpay corporate taxes and then claim them back subsequently and then thus push pushing the interest charge onto the tax authorities. Now, that was at once a sort of theoretical uh, construct, but we've actually seen some evidence of that already happening. So, for example, one canton in Switzerland, Zug, one of the low the low tax cantons in Switzerland, has already said it's, it's going to stop incentivizing people to pay their taxes early. And they've come out and actually said we'd rather people pay their taxes as late as possible. And you can think of many other ways in which people could try and avoid, uh, fi- find ways of storing cash that didn't, that avoided the charge on, on deposits. So uh, using lots of prepaid cards, signing certified checks for themselves and then keeping them in a drawer. And even if you, look, if you think about how businesses operate, businesses used to always try to cut their stock levels down. Now you can see them, you might, might see them increasing their stock levels because the stocks they hold will just be a, an, another way of, of, of storing value that doesn't incur a negative interest rate. And, and not just stock levels, I mean, things like paying invoices early, right? I mean, the whole world of, you think of, of big companies trying to pay their invoices as late as possible, and, and meanwhile, holding the cash and making a return on that. If cash doesn't earn you a return, Right then, then the reverse is true. Right, you want to you want to pay your invoices as quickly as possible and 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 shove the cash onto uh, the next person down the supply chain. Right, we just recently had some some complaints about big retailers in Britain, um, essentially paying their suppliers too late. But you can imagine them trying to pay their suppliers as early as possible to push off the excess cash on cash onto their suppliers. And you think think of many other examples of how conventions would be turned upside down. You might even think of. Uh, subscriptions to The Economist or to any other magazine. Usually you get a you, you, the annual rate you pay for subscribing for several years is much less than the, what you would pay for subscribing for one year. But that might be turned on its head. We might be, <laughs> companies might be looking for, for people to subscribe in, in the short term so that they don't have to have the cost of holding the extra cash. A brave new world. And, and, and it's, it's, as I said, this scourge is spreading. Where, where do you think it might come to next? Well, I suppose you look around the world and look at a place where interest rates are close to zero. It's actually difficult to to implement negative interest rates in America because there is so lots of liquid savings are actually held in money market funds and not in banks. So actually, for them to charge negative interest is actually quite difficult. But you might look at somewhere like Canada, 
pretty low, close to the zero low, lower bound and its, its economy is struggling as the oil price goes down. Might be one place. I would say just one slight caveat to that, which is that generally what we've seen in Europe and I think certainly in, in Switzerland, Denmark and, and Sweden is that negative interest rates were introduced as a way of trying to repel money coming into the country and driving up the exchange rate. I think that's probably a consideration in Europe and also in, in Japan as well. The great symbolism of this is that you've have, you now have three of the big post-war savings c- countries, which is Switzerland, Germany and Japan, are now charging negative interest rates. So look around the world and look at another big surplus country. Think of China. And you think possibly that negative interest rates might eventually come to, to China. Or I think there's several steps they have to go through before that happens. Uh, so if that happens, Chinese savers would have more than just financial fraud to worry about. Uh, anyway, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you very much, James. Thank you very much, John. Uh, don't forget, if you want to be a part of the conversation, you can tweet us at econbizfin and at econeconomics. You can find our article on P2P uh, lending in China on our website. And in the upcoming issue of The Economist, we'll have a take on negative interest rates. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.